Well, we'll come to the time in our service now where we'll look at a passage of Scripture and talk about what it means, why it matters. Uh, this is the foundation of everything we want to do here, the Word of God. It is uh, God's revelation to us that we take with us, that we can come to whenever we want. And so let's come to it today together. If you will turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27, if you're using this brown pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1919. When you found that, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? It's a longer reading this morning, so you may want to hang on to the pew in front of you. Genesis 27, beginning at verse 1. We read this. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. And Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you the blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him. Some of your translations will say mocking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just like his father liked. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goat skins, and she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father... Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my games so that you may give me a blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father who touched him and said, The voice of Jacob is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him, and when Isaac caught the smell of the clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. 
May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, and his brother came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food, brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of the game, so that you may give me your blessing. His father asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your, blessing, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He's deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he has taken my blessing. Then he said, haven't you any blessing for me? Now Esau has this plea with his father to bless him. And finally, in verse 39, all that Esau has left for his son is to say, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless... You will throw his yoke from off your neck. Verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, good luck, I will send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us now and commit this time to the Lord as well. Lord God, we come now to your word as those who want to receive from you now. You've said that when you send out your word, you accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We don't know what those purposes are, but we believe you have a purpose in each one of our hearts, in each one of our lives that you want to accomplish this morning. I ask that you would do it. I ask that you would speak through your word, speak through me by your spirit, and accomplish whatever that purpose is in each one of our hearts this morning, Lord God. And as I always ask, eternal God, now move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, when you look at this picture, let's go to the next slide. When you look at this picture, what's uh, the first thing you think of? What comes to mind when you see a family portrait like this? Maybe you've seen it on a mantle or in a museum or somewhere, maybe at grandma and grandpa's house. What, what comes to your mind when you see it? We just, most of us, we look at it, we see a respectable 19th century family. You know, they got their Sunday best on. They're sitting there getting their family portrait done. It's like... 19th century Sears portrait taking place here. But what if I were to tell you that what we're looking at here is actually the family portrait of Jesse James, the famous bank and train robber of the James Younger gang. All of a sudden, I think it's uh, this young fellow just on the, uh, right, our right-hand side here by his mother. That changes the picture all of a sudden, doesn't it? Just knowing that information, now we're looking at the same picture, and yet now it changes the way we see it. 
That's actually conceptually what I had in mind with this image when I put it together, thinking because the idea that when we look closer behind the scenes, when we look, uh, open up the frame and look in behind, when we peek behind the curtain, very often, not always, but very often, things are not always what they appear to be at first. The picture behind the picture sometimes is a little bit darker than what we imagined. What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that many times we look at the Bible in just the same way. We're beginning this new series, True Family Portrait, and we're saying, I want to say when we come to the Bible and we think about what the the family portrait of God looks like, we have a very clear picture in our mind of what we think that looks like. You ask anyone, well, what does the family of God look like, Christian or not? They're going to have a picture in their mind, and very often it's this respectable Uh, dignified, holier-than-thou, sort of put-together picture. And yet, when you read this book, when when you read this book and you look at the kind of stories we see in here, what we just read today, you start to see that that picture couldn't possibly come from here. There's no way it came from here because it's so radically different when you read the pages of the Bible. In fact, you come to see that from beginning to end, there's actually only one family member in God's family that's actually good, that's actually respectable, and that's Jesus. The rest of us, from from the beginning all the way until the end of time, we are all a bunch of misfits and outlaws, deeply flawed in a thousand different ways, and all very much in need of transformation ourselves, as much transformation as Jesse James needed, and all saved by the grace of God alone. So behind the picture frame in your picture of God's family portrait. I think you'll see the exact same folds that come out of wanted and reward offered for outlaws and criminals. It's behind God's picture of his family as well. But here's the good news. We just spent five weeks going through our purpose and talking about the power of the gospel to transform things, to transform people and renew them. So while all of us might still have that same uh, reward, wanted, sign behind our family portrait, the good news is if you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you also have written across that photo, royal pardon, not guilty, and it's written in the blood of Christ. During his earthly ministry, Jesus uh, said these words. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Later on, he gave this very strange rebuke to the Pharisees. He said to them, even tax collectors and prostitutes are entering into the kingdom ahead of you. And we start looking at this story we read. We start hearing those things that Jesus said. Looking at this picture, it should cause all of us to ask ourselves an important question. If the true picture of what the family of God looks like that then where did this neat and tidy picture come from? Where, where did, when did the, the picture of the family of God become this cleaned up, put together, no questions anymore, everyone's all fine kind of a picture? Where did we get that from? And where did we come to see being transformed by the gospel, meaning no longer in need of grace anymore? In order to help broaden all of our pictures, to kind of return us to what the true picture actually is, as well as to open our eyes to the kind of people that God can use. He can use anyone. Broaden our picture of who it is we should be looking at when we think, who should I be ministering to? The, the whole point of all of this 
is, is looking at the true family portrait. So we're going to do that in this series. We're going to look each Sunday at a, at a different person from the Bible. They're all very much a part of God's family, but they're all deeply flawed. They're all the same misfits and outlaws. Point is, they're all people just like us. So this is God's true family portrait that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. And the very first person I want us to look at is this guy that we just finished reading about, Jacob. Jacob, who is the younger of two sons of Isaac. Isaac being the son of Abraham. This makes Jacob Abraham's grandson. One of Jacob's big flaws for which he absolutely is in need of transforming grace, which we've seen here now, is lying. Deception. Which makes Jacob, as he lives this way and as he acts this way, it makes Jacob a very wanted man as well. But not wanted in the sense of, I want your autograph or I'd like you to come and speak at my next We Day event. Wanted in the sense of, I want to kill you. I want to kill you. If you want a modern day uh, a picture of what we're talking about here, Jacob is a real life Captain Jack Sparrow. That's, that's, that's who he is. A trickster and a pirate who will use any means necessary. He will lie. He will cheat, manipulate whatever it is in order to get whatever that thing is he wants. He'll use any means necessary. Which means Jacob, this guy we're seeing, he's a part of the family of God, and yet he's not exactly someone that we're going to be calling on to fill the next ministry uh, at our church. You know, Who wants to take over kids' ministry? Let's call Jacob. Probably not. And yet what we're going to see today is that even though Jacob is this despicable deceiver whose sin damages himself as well as everyone else around him. This in no way prevents God from gathering the angels of heaven around him and saying, yep, that guy right there, yeah, that, that's the guy that I'm choosing to, to represent my family now after Isaac. That's the guy who I'm going to give all the promises that I promised to Abraham to. I'm giving it to, to him. And I don't know if angels have eyebrows, but if they do, the eyebrows were raised when God said this. Just like, oh, what? But God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? And while absolutely surprising to hear that, this also ought to give us a great deal of comfort and hope when we think about that. We consider God's limitless power to transform things from one thing to another, as well as God's infinite ability to use whatever means he needs in order to bring about his perfect ends. So, as we look at this true family portrait, starting today with the life of Jacob, I want to show you just two things today from our passage. I want to show you the devastation of deception and then the adoption of deceivers. The devastation of deception and the adoption of deceivers. So if you close your Bibles, do you open them again to Genesis 27? Follow along with me and we'll dig into this together. So let's look first of all at the devastation of deception. The devastation of deception. Now, it shouldn't surprise any of you to hear me say that lying and deception can, can bring about a great deal of destruction in our lives, nor would it probably surprise anyone to hear me say that lying, uh, bearing false witness, is a sin that's condemned all through the pages of the Bible. There's probably nobody that's thinking, what? Lying? Is God, doesn't have, God doesn't enjoy that? No. We all get that, and We've seen countless examples of it. Those of you who are old enough will remember uh, the devastation that resulted from the lies of Richard Nixon and his aides during the Watergate scandal. 
As that was discovered, it brought an end to his presidency, threw the nation into all kinds of weird turmoil as they figured out, what, what do we do with this? On a much more everyday level, when we know that trust is one of the basis of all relationships, how we build trust with one another is being able to rely on what people tell to us. And if that trust is abused through deception, it can bring great devastation to our relationships with one another. In the Old Testament, the sin of lying actually makes God's top ten list, if we can call it that, as he hands down the law to Moses and the Ten Commandments, saying, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. In the New Testament, actually, Jesus, talking about Satan himself in John 8, calls Satan the father of lies. says, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language, meaning when we lie, we're actually speaking like Satan. And yet, even knowing all that, even seeing in our lives the results, the devastation that can come from lying and deception, we still have a scale that we want to measure all of our lies on, don't we? And it ranges from little tiny white lies, which these don't do anything, all the way over to big, bold-faced lies, which we're going to say, okay, yeah, that can probably cause a lot of damage. And then along with that, our inner defense attorney always wants to bring in uh, the evidence, the circumstantial evidence, uh, uh, the motivations behind the necessity sometimes of lying. I mean, you bring up the question of dishonesty, and how many times have you had that conversation and someone wants to immediately say, well, what about Germans hiding Jews in World War II? Huh? Should they have just been honest and said, I'm hiding Jews here? No. To which I always want to say, okay, yeah, sure. That's totally true. Are you saying that you're equating you forgetting about your wedding anniversary this year with hiding Jews in Nazi Germany? Is that, are those the same thing? Probably not. In the case of Jacob, we, we, we have all kinds of the same kind of I think, excuses, justifications we'd want to put on it. Look, first of all, at verse 5 of our passage. We want to play the same defense card here. In the first place, when we, we see this section here where Jacob's mother, Rebecca, she hears Isaac's plan to want to bless Esau, and she introduces this, this plan to get the blessing for Jacob instead. Now, when a child acts like their parent in some sort of a, a mannerism or way of being. You know, have you heard the expression people say, well, the apple sure didn't fall far from the tree? Well, in the same way here, sometimes people say that because they want to, maybe if it's a bad thing, they're almost trying to excuse the behavior of the child. They're like, well, they came by it honestly. You know, look at how their father is. Look at how their mother is. Of course they're that way. And in the case of Jacob, we could probably make that case. I mean, his mother's the one initiating this plan. She comes to him with the plan. And if you look back through the story, actually we see Isaac is, is lying about Rebekah being his wife, which he learned from Abraham, his father, who two times were told about, lied about his wife being his sister because he didn't want to get killed. So there's, there's a whole history of lying in this family. So you'd almost want to cut Jacob a little bit of a break and be like, well, hey, I mean, you could say he's come by his dishonesty honestly. I mean, look at, look at his family. Or perhaps if you, if you know the story even better, you might want to say, listen, Jacob has to deceive his father. He has to. It's, it's just necessary. Because earlier on, God promised Rebekah, he said to her, listen, the younger son is going to rule over his brother. The older brother will serve the younger. The blessing has to come to Jacob. So knowing all this, I mean, what choice does he have? He's about to give the blessing to the wrong person. He needs God's help, I guess, to... Make it happen. 
Both of those uh, are very compelling and, and, and good rationalizations, justifications, and yet unfortunately they avoid the very real point that Jacob, Jacob's a deceiver. He's just a, he, he's a liar. He is. And while he may have seen it demonstrated in his family, he, he's got his own uh, ability to do it all on his own as well. Take a look, first of all, at verse 11 and 12 of our passage. Look with me here. So uh, Rebekah's come with this plan of how to trick Isaac out of the blessing. Listen to Jacob's response. He says, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I'd appear to be tricking him, would bring down a curse on myself rather than blessing. So you see, he, he's got no problem whatsoever tricking his father, deceiving his father. His only problem is not one of ethics at all. It's just efficacy. He's just like, well, what if it doesn't work? He doesn't say it all. Oh, Mom, listen, we can't do that. We can't lie to Dad. We can't, we can't steal the blessing from Esau. He doesn't care about that. He just wants to make sure the plan works. And if you look ahead, uh, verse 35, you see how uh, Isaac, when he finally realizes what happens, how, how quickly he, he just says, oh, of course it's Jacob. Jacob came in and deceived me and stole your blessing. He just he knows, of course it's Jacob. And, and uh, Esau's response in verse 36, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Jacob's name in Hebrew means he grasps the heel, which figuratively means he deceives. His whole name means liar. That's not coincidental. Which is all of which to say is that deceptive, manipulative behavior, tricking, lying like this sort of thing, as wicked and destructive as it is, is about as surprising and unlikely behavior from Jacob as going into Costco and spending more than you meant to. It just happens. That's just, it's the way it is. And look at how following this, uh, in verse 41 and following, now look at, in the course of a few minutes, how Jacob's entire family is torn apart now. The family will never be the same after this. Uh, uh, Jacob will now have to run from his brother. He'll have to leave his family and go away because now his brother Esau is so furious he wants to kill him. I mean, this is just Jerry Springer on a whole crazy level happening in reality right here on the pages of the Bible. And now do you know what? It'll be years, years before Jacob ever sees his brother again. And actually... For all of her plans of Rebecca saying, when, when he's calmed down, I'll, I'll invite you back, Jacob will never see his mother alive again. This is just a taste. This is just a snapshot of the kind of devastation that comes from deception. And whether you're a person that prides yourself in your honesty or a person that reads these details of Jacob's life and is like, <laughs> I think that's bad. Let me show you some things doesn't matter. We, we all have something we can learn from this warning here in our passage. And it, and it really is a warning. It's a loving plea from our Heavenly Father to avoid this sin of deception in our own lives so we can avoid the destruction that comes from it. I mean, really, God shows us these devastating results of deception all through His, His, His Word here. The, uh, the very first, and I think the greatest that we see, is actually back at the beginning of Genesis the very beginning in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are told a lie by Satan. And in believing it, just like Jacob, they believe that their father didn't have their best interests in mind and that they needed to take from him what they believed he was withholding from them. 
The result of that sin was the very same separation from the Father, separation from one another. Relations were torn apart because of this. So, so our passage here in Genesis 27, it's actually just retelling the results of that first deception back in Genesis 3. It's just playing them out again. And as we think about our own lives here and, and, and the devastating results of deception that we see in our own lives, I want to ask you, think, how many times do we miss out on the blessings of God, the blessings of others when we deceive when we deceive by hiding our true identity, uh, hiding our true uh, uh, needs, hurts, questions, whatever it is from God, from the community of faith in the clothing of pretense, the clothing of religiosity. We come before God in our prayer times trying to speak in our King James English and sound very holy. Or we come into church trying to look put together. In a sense, it is a deception. And the sad thing is, is we miss out on God's blessings when we do it. Somebody said this once, and I believe it. God can't heal who you pretend to be. Think that's right? God can't heal who you pretend to be. And I would add along with that, the, the church, the body of Christ around you, can't help, can't care for hurts, struggles, questions that you keep hidden. We can't do it because we don't know they're there. With God, it's easy because he just easily sees past all the, the costumes and the coverings we try to put on. I mean, it's like when you play hide-and-seek with a toddler, and they go right to the middle of the room and just cover down like this, and they think because they're covering their eyes, you can't see them. That's how it is with God when we try to hide our real questions, our real hurts from him. He sees it easily. Now, yes, with others, it's more complicated. It's more complicated because... Uh, uh, yes, absolutely, the church can care for one another. We can care for needs and struggles that you share. And yet, some of you would say, I don't think so. Guess what? I, I did share my needs and my hurts and struggles. Nothing happened. Nobody seemed to care. Or maybe even, I shared this struggle with someone in my church, and actually I walked away feeling more hurt and more damaged because instead of receiving grace, I was shamed I was rejected by that person. And those are real hurts. And those are, those are real, real life pictures of what sometimes life happens in the church. And, and I'll tell you what, I'll be real honest with you. There is zero risk in bringing your hurts, your questions, whatever it is to God. There is zero risk, but there is always some degree of risk when you bring those things to other people. There is. Because we're not God. We're not yet perfected. We don't always respond the way we should. But the problem is, the only way you're going to know is if you're willing to take the risk. You're not going to know how it's going to be received unless you're willing to take the risk and openly share it. And if you choose to remain safe and keep hidden, that's going to also mean that you now have to bear those burdens without the support that God means to put around you in the church, in the family of God. So how can we do this as a church? How can we do this? How, how can we be the place that, that shares our true family portrait with each other so that we can see and, and experience the blessing and the support from one another? I'm going to offer some options here. This is not all of them, but I, I want us to try to commit today to start trying to do this. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to fail at it. But can we commit to start acting this way with each other? If you're a person here today 
who still has deep questions and struggles with the Christian faith. That's great. If that's where you are, if you're still in that part of the process, would you be willing this week to share that with someone else? Share it with someone. Tell them you feel that way. And if you're that someone that is shared those questions, those doubts with, can you just receive that with, with grace and openness and a willingness to learn together? If you're someone who's struggling relationally in your marriage or, or, or with your kids, can we take off the, the costumes this week of, I got it all together, I got it all worked out, and can you just share that with someone this week? Just, uh, it's, it's not going well right now. We're not doing okay. And if you're that someone that they share that with, can you be someone that, that receives that with empathy, with compassion, and a willingness to walk alongside them? until they've moved past that difficult stage. If you're someone trapped and held in the chains of some addiction, would you be willing to just crack the door this week just a little bit? Would you pull back the curtain the tiniest bit and share with someone that struggle? Hey, I'm not in control of this anymore. I need help. And if you're that someone that they share with, Can you receive that this week with grace and forgiveness? Offer them the grace and forgiveness that we all have because of Jesus and offer to be that accountability that goes along with them, that walks with them until they're free. We're talking about the devastation of of deception. What this is, if we can start doing this, this is the blessing that comes from Revelation. And it's one of the only ways that we're going to know the support and blessing of the family of God when we can just show our true family picture with each other. Say, this is who I really am. I haven't got it all together. Not, not putting on airs and pretending, pretending to have stuff wrong with us so we can look authentic, but just sharing the stuff that really is broken. And we'll know the forgiveness of God and the, and the healing and the blessing that can come from this family that he's put us with. That's the devastation of deception. I want to spend these last few minutes now just talking about the adoption of deceivers. The adoption of deceivers. And this is actually the best part of the story because this is where the story goes off script. It goes off script in the way that that none of us deserve and yet all of us hope it will go. Uh, Look ahead, just a few verses, to chapter 28 now in verse 10. Chapter 28 and verse 10. Here is where Jacob has this dream as he's out on the run. Starting at verse 12, listen. He, this is Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will, be, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob wakes up from this dream and he's changed. He's changed. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. And then he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, do you understand what we just read there? You know what that is? It's, it's Jacob's 
conversion, but it's not just any conversion, is it? Because the Jacob that we just saw changed here, the Jacob that we just saw changed by this meeting with God, is the same Jacob we were just talking about a second ago. Jacob who just blew up his whole family. Jacob who lied to the face of his blind elderly father. That Jacob, that deceiver, that's the guy now inheriting the promises of Abraham to be made into this great nation and to have a land given to him of his own. What's so staggering about that adoption of this deceiver Jacob is also what makes it such an encouragement to us today. Because this adoption is both unsought and it's unconditional. It's unsought in that, look back at verse 10 and 11. Here we see Jacob, like all outlaws, he's on the run. He's on the run from trouble and that's why he's out in the desert, okay? Jacob has not wandered off for some soul-searching experience where he wants to explore the inner depths of why he's so deceptive or to try and come face-to-face and meet God. He's, he's not thinking of God at all. He's just running. In fact, when you listen to Jacob talk about God, the one place that he even mentions God, back when he's talking to Isaac, he mentions him as the Lord your God, not my God. That's the first thing that we see with this engagement. If with Jacob, it's entirely of God's initiative. He's the one that's seeking out Jacob. He's the one who initiates this redemptive contact. And I swear to you, I'm not, not planning it this way when I choose passages, but we're just seeing again that this is how it happens in our salvation. However we understand the chronology of events, God is in, he's the one initiating the salvation, not us. The old hymn writer said this in his hymn, I Sought the Lord. He said, I sought the Lord, and after I knew, he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. I was found of thee. Or as John says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. So this adoption is unsought. It's also unconditional. It's unconditional, and it's easy to miss that when we read about this story, the second half here in Genesis 28, but that at no point in that story does God rebuke Jacob. There's no chastising, uh, uh, no, no cutting him down for this past deception. He doesn't come to Jacob and say, now listen, you little weasel. Yeah, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you these promises, but there's going to have to be a lot of changes going on over here before I'm signing off on anything. He doesn't do that. He just pours out, just lavishes his grace on Jacob. It's unbelievable to us. And and this too, I'm telling you, he does it. Look at verse 13 there. He does it all on the basis of who he is. He starts with, I am the Lord, and then pours out these blessings. So everything is on the basis of who God is, not who Jacob is. And that too is the way it always works in our salvation. Of, of when, when God adopts outlaws and sinners like you and me, it's always on the basis of who he is. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's never on the basis of our performance, but only on God's ability to perform for us. I read a quote this past week from Tim Keller who said so well, it's only in Christianity that the verdict comes before the performance. In Romans 5.8, Paul says it this way, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, while we were shaking our fist at him, spitting in his face, that's when he initiated the contact 
And by no merit of our own, he saved us. And he adopted us into his family. And the way that adoption happens, the way God makes that possible for a perfect and holy God to adopt and welcome deceivers like Jacob and you and I who are neither of those things is by making a way, making a connection point for it to happen. And we see it in chapter 28 and verse 12. Look there. Remember, Jacob has this dream where God reveals himself to him and he sees this stairway resting on earth, reaching all the way to heaven with the angels ascending and descending on it. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes as God's supreme revelation of himself, he identifies clearly himself as that stairway. He is that connection point between heaven and earth. Listen to what Jesus says, John 1.51. I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on me. Jesus says, I'm that, I'm that connection point. I'm the thing that allows God to adopt Wicked deceivers like you, wicked deceivers like me. And because Jesus is not just some rabbi from 2,000 years ago who said some great things and then died a martyr's death, but God raised him to life, he's living now and interceding for us. That means today he's that same connection point for you and me. Today we can be adopted into that family because he's still the same connection point. The last verses there of chapter 28, what you see there is a deceiver's transformed response. Verse 16 and 17 particularly, Jacob awakes from this dream and he knows for certain. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't aware of it. And he, his response is one of awe. How awesome is this place where God is dwelling with me? His response is one of worship, of also of committing himself to, to, to God consecrating himself. And now for the very first time, he refers to God as the Lord my God. Verse 21. The Lord my God. And as we read on the story of Jacob's life, this is what we really see. And we're going to see actually each Sunday with all of these guys. This really is a real life portrait. This really is a true life portrait. Because here's the thing. A transformed life does not mean an instantly perfected life. It doesn't. Uh, uh, here's what I mean by that. When God adopts Jacob into his family, he's not, he, he's, his status in heaven is immediately adopted son of God. That's who he is now and for all time, and yet he still continues to struggle for the rest of his life. You know how at the end of plays or stage productions, uh, uh, a curtain comes up and everyone walks out, characters that were trying to kill each other in the play, they're, they're putting their arms around each other, and hey, wasn't that a great show? Thanks very much, everybody. The reason you know this is a real-life portrait is because that doesn't happen now. Yeah, God adopts Jacob into his family, but he continues to be on the run from Esau the rest of his life, and for, for years anyway. He continues to be estranged from his family. He continues to have to work out over the course of his life what it means to achieve what he wants without deceiving people, without playing tricks. So his adoption is complete in a moment, but his transformation takes a lifetime. And if you're an adopted child of God today, you know that that's the exact same reality for us. While our sin, in this case the sin of deception, is, is covered under the blood of Christ, struggles and temptations remain while we remain in this world. That's the reason why we need to have so much grace for each other, so much patience, because we're all in process, every single one of us. We're all at a different stage on the same process, 
We're all works in progress as we try to look, speak, act, think more and more like the one who adopted us. And as long as we're talking about a true family portrait, and I'm asking all of us to to share and be open about our real struggles and our real temptations, it probably wouldn't surprise any of you who know my own testimony to know why I would want to begin a series like this talking about Jacob. Because Jacob's story is very much my own story. Absolutely. And while uh, uh, the devastation that I brought in the past from my lying, it wasn't for the same reasons. Uh, um, My reasons for lying was much more about fear of man, wanting people to have a, a high opinion of me. The result was absolutely the same. All kinds of strain, devastation that came as I lost the trust of my family, lost the trust in my marriage, All kinds of devastation that came as the result of that to the point where there was so much devastation, there was so much lack of trust, it almost cost me my marriage. But when God finally got a hold of me, he had to do some very deep pruning in order to cause my branches to begin growing straight again. And it it has taken years to restore and rebuild the trust that I lost because of those people that I deceived. And no, no, although I have achieved great victory by the power of the Spirit working in my life, I am not completely perfected yet. I'm not. Uh, uh, When I look at my life now, I, I try, I strive to be honest to a fault now, and yet it's still not, there are, there are times when it's still not instinctive, it's still not natural to me, I still have to think about it. It's not perfected. There's times, now I'll be honest with you, but I won't also be kind. Or there's times I'll be prideful about the fact of how honest I'm being with you. It's just, the heart is so wicked. It'll take even something good and twist it into something bad. And so that's why we all need to continue to have this grace with each other. Because we're all going to continue to struggle, whatever it is, until we are perfected on that last day when we stand before Jesus So, the beauty of what we're seeing here is that when we can be honest about our struggles, we can present a true family portrait to each other. That actually opens the doors now for us to care for one another, for us to receive the care from God, forgiveness of God that he freely offers to us. And it allows us to present a real picture to the world around us, to show that Listen, when God saves someone, it's a work in progress. We're not these perfect people now. We still struggle in all the same ways. The only difference is now you could say between a Christian and a non-Christian is now we struggle. We actually struggle against the things that we used to embrace and freely walk in that were blowing up our lives. It's the only difference now is that we struggle against those things. So let's pray together right now and ask God to help us struggle well together. And I believe that he will do that as we're open and honest with him. I'd ask as well those helping me serve communion if you'd come forward and at this time. Living God, we come before you this morning as those in need. We are always that. And yet, God, so many times we, we want to come before you with robes of deception. 
We want to come to you thinking we need to clean up ourselves before we can come to you. Thinking we need to sound holy before you. Thinking we need to pretend with each other to look like we've got it together when we don't. And because of that, we miss the forgiveness that you freely offer to us. We miss the, the care that you want to offer to us with this body and this family that you put us in. God, help us just to be open and honest with each other about where we are truly at. Long to pour out for us as we do it. We ask that you do this for the sake of your name, and for the glory and the growth of your kingdom. Amen.